will do another contemplation this morning. A loving-kindness contemplation, which is distinct from the loving-kindness meditation by not just appealing to the arousal of feeling, but appealing to an understanding why. This contemplation is again introspection, and that's what contemplation is always about, introspection. How does this apply to me? What can I do about it? How can I either change it or cultivate it? I again will say the words, you can repeat them after me, and then I will explain something to help with the contemplation. In order to get started, please put the attention on the breath. after me. May I be free from enmity. And we need to have a look inside of ourselves and find out whether there are any rejections, resistances, dislikes towards others, whether they are there now or whether they arise when there is a trigger for them. We can also look into whether this brings happiness or unhappiness to us when they are aroused, those feelings of enmity. And we could then try to find a way to be free from it, to let go, to drop the reaction, to see that our own peace and happiness depends on it. In order to make it successful, we have to find our own way within how to do that.
I be free from hurtfulness. Again, we can inquire into ourselves whether we sometimes willingly and sometimes unwillingly are hurtful and try to find a way to diminish it or eliminate that, to become harmless in all ways, in the physical, the mental, and the emotional. It first needs a realization and then a determination. And also when we introspect, we will undoubtedly find that hurtfulness hurts the one who's doing it far more than the one who's getting it. May I be free from troubles of mind and body. This is our lovingness towards ourselves. We need to ascertain, inquire what is troublesome for mind and body, what is helpful, and find our way. And the opposite of troublesome is not necessarily comfortable. The opposite is elevating, growing,
May I be able to protect my own happiness. The first and foremost inquiry is, what is my happiness? And once having found that, then how do I protect it? And what do I have to protect it from? These are important considerations in everybody's life. And they always need to be based on loving oneself and others. Whatever beings there are, may they be free from enmity. And here we have the opportunity to extend our lovingness to others, particularly if we have, through this contemplation, found a way to reduce or eliminate negativities within ourselves and can thereby point the way, become a noble friend. Unless we have found our own way, no way we can show it to anyone else. Whatever beings there are, 
may they be free from hurtfulness. Again, if we have found our own way, we can help others. We can also use this as a feeling of lovingness towards others, wishing them to be free from hurting. We can use it in our own lives to recognize that it's difficult to be free from hurtfulness and therefore not blame. Whatever beings they are, may they be free from troubles of mind and body. And this is our connection and lovingness towards others, that we wish them that, that we hope for that, that we confront them with that kind of thought and feeling. Whenever we have any kind of dealing with others, we can recognize the fact that we have ourselves troubles of mind and body. 
that others undoubtedly have the same and that we wish for them that they may be able to eliminate that. Unless we get to know ourselves in that way, we will never be able to have this accepting attitude towards all other beings. Whatever beings there are, may they be able to protect their own happiness. Here we can recognize the fact that each person has a different idea of what happiness is constitutes. So if we are able to protect our own happiness, we must be able to help others to protect theirs. We must not think that they need to agree with us. Again, by the same token, if we have found a way to inner happiness, which is independent of outer conditions, we have a way of showing our lovingness to others by 
sharing that. I will tell you a little more about this particular discourse of the Buddha, how it came to be called the Relay Coaches. In the first instance, I told you that the Buddha was asking the other monks that were seated around him whether they knew of any monk who had all these different attributes and was also able to teach them, who had few wishes, was contented, lived secluded, did not have much to do with society, was virtuous, had energy, concentration, wisdom, was liberated and had recognized and understood liberation. Now I've explained some of these attributes to you. So when the monks were asked about this, they said yes, they knew one monk who had all these qualities and was able to teach them. And they said his name was Punya Mantani Putta. Putta means son. Mantani was his father's name. His own name is Punya. And they said that he had all these qualities and was able to arouse in others these qualities also. There was one monk present who was particularly interested. His name is Sariputta. Sariputta was the main disciple of the Buddha, his right-hand disciple. He was named by the Buddha as the disciple with the greatest wisdom. And often when the Buddha gave a discourse which was short and uh, only gave the main items. People who were listening to that later went to Sariputta to have a detailed explanation. And several times it is reported that after they had listened to the detailed explanation of Sariputta, they went back to the Buddha and asked him whether that detailed explanation was correct. And the Buddha invariably said, yes, it was. And always praised Sariputta as the one with the greatest wisdom and the greatest analytical ability. So when he heard about 
Punya Mantani Putta, he got very interested in meeting this monk. He'd never met him before. And he mentioned that. So Punya Mantani Putta appeared after some time and visited the Buddha and then went to what is called or was called the blind man's grove to what is usually called for a day's abiding. A day's abiding means meditation. The only way to abide is to meditate. And this blind man's grove is a name given to an area which we don't even know now exactly where it was, except that it was near the uh, Anatapinika Monastery in Jeta's Grove, which is near Savati. But we don't know exactly where in India this blind man's grove is. So it says in this particular discourse that Punya Mantani Putta, after having talked to the Buddha, went there for his meditation. And one of the other monks informed Sariputta that Punya Mantani Putta is now to be found there. So he followed him in order to meet him. And he waited, also meditated, and waited till Punya was finished with his meditation. And then he went and greeted him. And then he asked him several questions. He said to him, Is the holy life lived under the Buddha? And Punya said, Yes. And Saiputta said, And is it lived for the goal of the purification of virtue? And Punya said, No. And he said, Well, is it then lived for the goal or for the purpose of the purification of mind? And Punya said, no. And he said, well, is it then lived for the purpose of purification of view? And Punya said, no. He said, is it lived for the purpose of purification of overcoming all doubt? And Punya said, no. He said, is it then lived for the purpose of purification of knowing what is the path and what is not the path? He said, no. He said, is it then lived for the purification of knowledge and vision of things as they really are? Punya said, no. So Sariputta then said, but sir, I have now mentioned all manners of possibilities and you're saying no to everything. What is the holy life or the spiritual life lived for then? What is its purpose when it is lived according to the Buddha's instructions? Punya said, it is lived for only one purpose, and that is Nibbana without clinging. There is no other purpose in any spiritual path no matter what one may think. So, Sariputta still wasn't satisfied. 
we don't know exactly whether he wasn't satisfied or whether he wanted to find out more what Punya knew. And he said, well, in that case, is it lived for the purpose of purification of virtue without clinging? Punya said, no. And he went through all of them again, the purpose of purification of mind without clinging, of view without clinging, of overcoming doubt without clinging, of the knowledge and vision of what is the path and not the path without clinging, knowledge and vision of things as they really are without clinging, and Punya said no to everything. And again, Sariputta said, well, now you're saying no to everything again, and yet I'm using this the terminology of without clinging that you've just given me. So now, what is it? And he, Punya said, if this were the case, if it was virtue or view or mind or overcoming doubt without clinging, ordinary people could do that. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is only Nibbana, without clinging. It is not just knowledge and vision of things as they really are or any of the others you have mentioned. But, he said, I will explain it to you now in a way which is easily understood by intelligent people. The word intelligent is often used in the Buddha's discourses. And sometimes it ha he has been accused of being elitist. Um, separationist because he talks to intelligent people. But it is a fact that one, if one isn't intelligent, one isn't going to understand it. It's one's own good karma to be able to understand it. Doesn't mean one has to be a genius. So Punya says, I will now give you a simile which is easily understood by intelligent people. He said, now, if King Persenidae, who was a famous king at the time of the Buddha and one of the Buddha's supporters, who lives in Savati, wants to get quickly to Saketa, he cannot do so in any other way except by using several coaches. He has to use a first coach, and when the horses are tired, he has to change to a second coach, and then to a third one, to a fourth one, to a fifth, to a sixth, and a seventh. And then, when he walks up to the steps to the palace in Sakita, and a person were to ask him, did you arrive in the palace at Sakita with this last coach? Truthfully would have to say, no, I didn't. I came by several stages. One led to the other. And it's only because I used all these other coaches that I've now been able to get into the last one, which brought me here. Sai Putta was delighted with this explanation and uh, said that he thought that Punya was a great monk with great realization. And then Punya asked him who he was. 
And he said his name was Upatissa, which was his lay name, known as Sariputta, which was his monk's name. And then Punya became quite um, uh, shy and said, if he had known that he was talking to Sariputta, the greatest disciple of the Buddha, he wouldn't have said so much. But it is this particular sutta, this discourse, the basis for the whole, as I've mentioned already, path of purification, the Sudhimaga, which is the main explanation of the Theravadan teaching based on the Buddhist discourses and contains everything we ever need to know. Now, in these particular words which I have just used, these are only the landmarks. They're only the direction finders. They don't contain the actual guidelines yet. But I will explain to you in the time we have available as many of the guidelines as I can and if any of you ever really feel called upon to know all about it, you can spend the next two or three years reading the Visuddhimagga. It contains the whole lot. The reason I'm saying it takes two or three years is because we do not read such instructions as we read an ordinary book. You can read the book of 400 pages in well, I don't know, in a few weeks or even less, depending on how much time one has. But this is not the way the instructions of a spiritual master can be read to any benefit to oneself. The way we read these is one paragraph at a time and then try to actually commit this paragraph to memory and having committed it to memory, practice it. And that might take a week, a month, a year, who knows, depending on how difficult that particular paragraph is. And only then do we read the next paragraph. Now, sometimes, of course, some paragraphs do not contain instructions how to practice. We might have to read a whole chapter. but. In that particular book, a whole chapter would be impossible to practice all at once. So it takes years to get through that. The wealth of information which is contained in that particular book also is historical and shows the Buddha to be a historical person and also mentions many of the kings and monks of the time who were famous and gives a very good insight into the way life was lived in those days. Just as this particular suit, they give a little insight showing that people had to change their coaches, just like we have stage coaches here in America not that long ago, about a hundred years ago, where you had to change your coach because the horses got tired. Nowadays, of course, we don't ever have anything like that in our minds. We just go to a gas station and uh, get new horsepower in there. But in those days, this was one of the features and many of the similes, all of the similes that the Buddha uses or any of his monks 
contain aspects of life in those days. And it brings it very much to life. One feels connected. This isn't that long ago. Stagecoaches, well, we all know about stagecoaches, even if we haven't seen them ourselves. And uh, many of the things which are mentioned are of such um, vitality that they make it a very um, present to us. So that this isn't a teaching which was taught two and a half thousand years ago, which it was, but it is a teaching which applies to us today. And only if we feel that way about it will we have a heart and mind connection. If we don't have a heart and mind connection to it, we can't practice. It's as simple as that. Practice doesn't just mean sitting there and trying to watch the breath. That's only one little part of it. The heart and mind connection comes from that feeling of being together. Time is arbitrary. Our calendars and our clocks are man-made. They're very useful. They're utilitarian. If I want to meet somebody or if I want to catch a plane, I've got to know what day and what time. But that's about all it is good for. Because time is infinite. And time and space is now. And two and a half thousand years ago is now. There's no difference. It's all appearing this moment because we're putting our mind to it. The minute we don't put our mind to it, it's gone. It's finished. So the past, the present, and the future as we divide them up in our ordinary daily life, do not have a reality in the spiritual teaching. Now you can see that in this particular discourse, the Buddha started talking. The next one who talked was Sariputta, and then the next one who talked was Punya Mantaniputta. So we have here also a very interesting discourse, namely one given by three people, not just by the Buddha, which is quite rare. We do have discourses where one of the great monks is talking, usually Sariputta or Ananda, sometimes Mahamogalana. But where three of them are talking, it's quite rare. And they're all talking about the same thing. They're talking about one thing only, namely the way to Nibbana. And if one gets acquainted with the discourses of the Buddha, we will find that they all talk about that and nothing else. He starts at the point where we're at now, the ordinary sort of everyday type of reality that we're in and goes step by step to the transcendental consciousness which takes us out of all dukkha. Dukkha, which I told you I was going to use in the Pali word because it's too cumbersome to keep translating, does not disappear 
but the one who's having it is disappearing. And therefore, the Buddha said, there's only one thing I teach, and that's suffering and its end to reach. Suffering does not stop. We stop. There are many ways of explaining that, and many ways of reaching that through one's understanding. But in the end, they all meet. All these ways and means meet. So the Buddha gave ten qualities which he was looking for in a monk. And Saiputta mentioned seven ways that he was asking were they the reason and the goal of the spiritual path. And Punya said, none of them were the reason and the goal, but each one was a step. Without each one, we could never reach the goal, the goal being Nibbana without clinging. It's actually very helpful and very reassuring to know what one's goal is, even though one doesn't know what it's like. At least one has a goal. It's better than not knowing what life is all about or trying to make up one's own viewpoints. One's own viewpoints cannot be correct. They can be useful in a limited way, but they cannot be absolutely correct. So we know what the goal is, but what the most important thing is is to step into the first coach so that we can at least travel part of the way to then get into the next one. And the first one that Saiputta mentions is the purification of virtue. Now, purification is the theme song, so to say, of the whole of the discourse, of the whole of the teaching. Purification, we could say, means that it becomes basic, clear, one-pointed, without view and opinion, without frills and convolutions of the mind. One of our biggest problems are the convolutions of the mind. We're going around in circles on things, partially due to the fact that we've got too much information. Some information is helpful. Too much brings very often confusion. Purification of virtue. What does it mean to be a virtuous person? It doesn't just mean to live by a certain number of precepts, which it also means. But there's more to it than that. The precepts which I will explain at another time 
are a basic part of it. And I will just very briefly say that in the Buddhist discipline, they contain five aspects, not killing, not stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, backbiting, harsh words, no drugs. I will explain these five in more detail at another time. I want to go further with the purification of virtue into aspects which touch upon our daily living constantly. And we don't usually call them virtue, if we have a name for them at all. They contain our willpower. They are connected with our, with our contents of the mind. They are connected with our self-discipline and with guarding ourselves protecting ourselves. The first one, the willpower. It is expressed by the Buddha as the four supreme efforts. They take willpower. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that we can do without some willpower. It takes willpower to get up in the morning, <coughs> no matter what time it is. It takes willpower to accomplish anything at all. So, these four supreme efforts have to do with our mind states. They're worded by the Buddha like this. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. It sounds quite simple. It can become simple if we practice it long enough. It takes, first of all, Mindfulness, introspection, bare attention, objectivity, labeling. Labeling the content of mind. When an unwholesome thought has arisen, it's not difficult to label it. We know when we're angry, upset, fearful, anxious, jealous, envious, proud, and all the other wonderful states of mind that we are all familiar with. We know it. It's there. Unfortunately, anyone who doesn't practice justifies those states of mind and says, I've got to be, I can only be angry. This person is making me angry. In fact, we've got it built in in our language. He makes me sick, or she makes me sick. So it's her or his fault. We justify 
we have to justify, we think, because otherwise we would start blaming ourselves for having such thoughts. Justification does not bring any spiritual emancipation. Justification is only another way of supporting one's illusions. Blaming is just as detrimental. It doesn't produce anything. Objective labeling. As we do it in the meditation, hopefully, objective labeling, just saying what it is. There's nothing and nobody to blame. There's nothing to justify. It's just happening. There is a thought and it is unwholesome. It is connected with anger. It's connected with dislike. It's connected with rejection, distaste, whatever it may be. So we now, having learned the labeling in the meditative process, we do it in everyday life, and we can recognize after some practice that this unwholesome thought makes us feel awful. And if we haven't recognized that yet, we haven't practiced long enough yet, that's all. Every unwholesome thought makes one feel awful. Now, the next step may have to be before substituting it with a wholesome thought, it may have to be an understanding that it's foolish to make oneself feel awful. Maybe one can give oneself a pep talk saying, how foolish of me to make myself feel awful. This would be such an important step in recognizing that only we ourselves are able to make ourselves happy or unhappy. Everything else is a trigger. Nothing else can do it. Only we can. So when there is an unwholesome thought which is fully blown and it's right there, the necessary thing to do is to substitute. Now we learn substitution in our meditation by substituting any thought, every thought, with the meditation subject. Whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, whether it's nonsense or not, it doesn't matter. Every thought is supposed to be substituted. So we have learning substitution. In daily life, it concerns the unwholesome thought. We know that we can substitute. We have learned it, we have practiced it, we are aware of it, that it's possible. We don't have to stick to that thought. So if we stop justifying and stop thinking that these thoughts have a place in our lives, substitution should not be difficult. The difficulty arises when there is an understanding in oneself that such thoughts are necessary. I've got to be angry about the pollution, otherwise they're not going to stop it. 
If that is considered to be the right way of thinking, naturally one's got to be angry. But the actual fact is that anger produces anger. That's all it does. And on top of that, the pollution of our environment arises out of the pollution of our minds. And if we stop polluting our minds, we're going to stop polluting our environment. And if we have noticed how much trouble we're going to have to stop polluting our own mind, we might desist from trying to stop other people from polluting theirs. It's almost impossible to stop anyone from anything. But it is possible to stop ourselves. And having done so and finally come to purification, that purification has a place in the universal aspect of existence. It is one spot which is pure and thereby purifies the environment. So justifications for anger do not exist no matter what we have dreamt up or have heard or seen. But anger exists. There's no two ways about that. It does. But we don't have to keep it. And this is the beauty of spiritual practice. That's what practice means. We don't have to keep the negativities. We can change them. We have already noticed in our meditation practice that we can change something. So we can change more than that. We substitute the unwholesome thought with a wholesome one. And immediately we can, after having done so, feel the relief, the ease. All unwholesome thinking is heavy. It gives a feeling of being bogged down. It's unclear. We can't see the other person's viewpoint anymore. We can't even see our own anymore. We're just angry or upset, whatever it may be. And it gives a feeling of limitation. It's, um, the Buddha calls it a contracted mind. The mind contracts and becomes very um, bound by that particular thought process. The minute we drop it, we feel relieved. Everything is much lighter and we can see other aspects of the same matter. It's much more difficult to stop an unwholesome thought before it has arisen. But it's much more profitable. The reason it's much more profitable is because our thinking makes grooves into our mind, becomes habitual. 
The more often we think negatively, the easier it is to do so. Vice versa with positive thinking. We could think of our mind as the greatest jewel there is. It's the greatest gift, the greatest wealth. It contains the seed of enlightenment. If we have a very valuable jewel, it would stand to reason that we would protect it from dirt and scratches. We would put it away in cotton wool and see that nothing happens to it. Well, we do not protect our mind that carefully. And yet, it contains far greater wealth than any jewel ever found. So we can protect our mind by not allowing the unwholesome thought to arise before it has arisen. Now, the trick in that is that all unwholesome thoughts send ahead an unpleasant feeling. So we need to become aware of our feelings. It sends ahead a feeling of heaviness, distaste, a feeling of being unwell. It's not strong. It's fairly subtle. Sometimes it's a feeling of as if one is being stabbed or poked. And the next thing is the unwholesome thought. And it follows so quickly that one is overrun by it before having noticed the feeling. Again, we learn this through our meditation practice, mindfulness, attention, watching, being very attentive to what's happening within, knowing our feelings in such a way we will be able to eventually avoid the unwholesome thought before it has arisen. Or when it's in the beginning, just poking its head up. It's just poking its head up. It's just trying to come. And at that moment, already realizing that can be no good to me. Never mind what it does to other people. It's no good to me that it's also detrimental to others is a second consideration. But in the first consideration, it will hurt me. So do not let it arise. At that time, it is much easier to bring up a wholesome thought because the unwholesome one hasn't taken root yet. It hasn't become full-blown yet. It's only in its infancy so it is much easier to bring in something wholesome. Particularly, our main problems are usually with other people. There's hardly anybody in the world that doesn't have problems with other people. Now this, then, as it arises as an unwholesome thought for other people, the substitution at that time can be to remember 
all their good parts, all the good qualities they have, if we know them well enough. If we don't know any good qualities or can't think of any, then imagine them. We're all born with six roots. We've all got three good ones and three unwholesome ones. So if we can't remember their good qualities, we can take it for granted they've got them. And just as we ourselves are sometimes beset with negativities and other times beset with positivities, so are other people. The only person we can really protect are we ourselves. And if we don't protect our own mind, nobody else will. It is impossible. It's entirely up to us. And as we protect our own mind, it becomes a habit. Now, protection does not mean indifference, nor does it mean that what indifference implies namely turning away from disinterest, non-caring, doesn't imply that at all. Protection means one thing only, namely to protect oneself from the negative reactions, the negative thought processes, and support and substitute and cultivate the positive those that are connected with what are called the four Brahma-viharas, the four supreme emotions, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. I will talk about those probably in more detail, not at this point, because they are um, a very important aspect of our emotional life and need a detailed analysis. Now, if we haven't had any wholesome thought at all, we may have times in our life where a lot of disquiet, anxiety, fear, rejection arises. We need to look at that as nothing but a phenomena. We don't have to live with that. And we don't have to look for somebody to do anything about it. We can do it ourselves with willpower. That's all that's necessary. Willpower is the support system. Without that Nothing happens at all. In fact, it is one of the four pathways to power, the concentration of our will. If we don't want to be unhappy, mind you, some people, although they think they don't want to be unhappy, are quite attached to their unhappiness, makes them feel alive. It's my problem. It's my unhappiness. It's my difficulty. That, of course, 
is counterproductive to willpower. But if we don't suffer from that particular difficulty, the willpower to change our thinking needs just a bit of practice, that's all. But it needs one other thing. It needs the meditation experience where we learn not to believe our thoughts. Now, if you've been diligently labeling your distracting thoughts, you must by now have come to the conclusion that 80% of them are worthless and the other 20% could just as well be left at home. We don't have to believe them. They're just thoughts. And when we have come to that understanding, we will be able, with quite a great deal of ease, change the unwholesome thought or arouse the wholesome one, not believing whatever there is, but recognizing that our peace and happiness is dependent upon our thought system and that we ourselves are the producers of it. We are producing this thought system. So if we really would like to be happy and peaceful, why don't we produce a thought system which is conducive to peacefulness and happiness? The Buddha calls it the supreme efforts. There are also four of the 37 factors of enlightenment, they only become factors of enlightenment when they have been perfected. But there's nothing to stop us from practicing. We all have that ability. As long as we have an intelligent mind, which all of us have, we all have the same ability. We all have the ability to change our mind. We all have the ability to purify it. And we all have the ability to come to Nibbana, to the end of all Dukkha. They are supreme because they bring supreme benefit, but they're also supreme because they're difficult. There are the two dangers, which I've already mentioned. I'll repeat them. One danger is justification, and the other danger is believing one's own thoughts. As soon as we no longer justify or believe in our own thought system, but make sure that the thoughts we have produce peacefulness and happiness, then we will be able to change them. Very often, our mindfulness is not sufficient. We are caught in a whole circle of negative thoughts before we even notice what's going on. And because they have already been present for quite a while and we have already believed them for quite a while, it's more difficult to change them. Mindfulness is exactly that, what we're trying to practice in meditation. That attention to what's going on. 
within. Mindfulness is also possible to exert on that which is going on outside of oneself. But at this point in time, we're just talking about the mindfulness which is inner-directed. And that inner-directed mindfulness is the hook on which it all revolves, that inner direction to find out what it is and then change it. It becomes habitual. One watches one's mind process habitually. And even though it may still arise negative, it will not remain so. Because the mind is quite geared to staying with being happy and peaceful. Meditation is the support system for that. But unless we practice this in daily life, the meditation won't work and the peace and happiness won't work. So we have to have both areas of practice. We have to have the meditative practice where we can quietly sit without having any outer triggers happening to us. And we have to have the daily practice where all the outer conditions are constantly impinging upon us and giving us every opportunity to practice. The opportunities in everybody's life to practice are innumerable. And if we then forget about our spiritual ambitions, of course, we will feel the result when we get to the meditation. Because what we bring in the mind with us to the meditation pillow, that's going to disturb our meditation or support the meditation, whichever way it's happening. So the first aspect is avoidance, avoiding the unwholesome thinking. The second one is not continuing. The third one is arousing, and the fourth one is maintaining. Maintaining when we have already have when we have already thought a positive thought to maintain it to stay with it recognizing its benefit for our own peacefulness now sometimes when people hear this explanation they come to the conclusion that that means that one loses one's discrimination that would be dreadful. If we lose our discrimination, we would no longer be able to discriminate between good and evil. We know when there is evil being done, but we don't hate it. We just know it. We hate the crime, but not the criminal. It's as simple as that. 
And as we see around us, many things that we do not consider good or profitable, the first thing to do is to find out within oneself whether we ourselves are totally innocent of them. That's the most important aspect of all that what we see around us. Because it is a very interesting fact which you must, or could, sorry, could investigate yourselves that all that we know about others is strictly a mirror of ourselves. If we didn't know it within, we couldn't see it without. That's why it is said, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. We would never recognize one. We are not a Buddha, so we don't know what it feels like. So we wouldn't recognize one. If we see hate or dislike, envy or aggression, we know it because we've got it. Otherwise, we couldn't see it. What we see, we can use very profitably by looking within and seeing whether we still have it and need to get rid of it or whether we only recognize it because we used to have it and have got over it. It takes an enormous amount of self-honesty. But if we're not honest to ourselves, who are we going to be honest to or honest with? If it isn't to us ourselves. And we don't have to tell anybody. We can keep it a secret. But as long as we tell ourselves, it's not easy. It's much easier to see a beam in the eye of another than the splinter in the eye of oneself. But when we watch our own reactions to other people, we have a great help, a great support system, because we can immediately investigate, have I got this? We may not have it to the same extent. We may have got over it already. But it's part and parcel of our makeup. That is part of external mindfulness, part of being mindful outside. Now, mindfulness is always without judgment. Mindfulness is nothing but bare attention. We do not say to ourselves, now that was a nice breath, or that was a a short one, or that was a, a shallow one, or this wasn't so good, because if we do, we can't meditate. We can't be concentrated. We just have to know breath. Breath in, breath out. No judgment, no discrimination. The same with mindfulness on everything else. We know anger, we know envy, we know pride, we know jealousy. We know um, greed. No judgment, we just know it. It's there. And as we know it in ourselves... Mm -hmm. And look at it. The main incentive to do something about it comes from the fact 
that it doesn't make us happy. If it did, we would never have any incentive to change it. We are so constituted that we want to be happy and peaceful, and we should be. And if all these negative emotions and thoughts would make us happy, we would keep them. We wouldn't have any incentive to change them. Our justification system appears to bring about some happiness, but it doesn't really. It brings about an ego support, which is also what we're constantly looking for. But if we're really honest and can see that the real happiness is escaping us, then we have the strongest possible incentive to change something. So the four supreme efforts are our system, our method for purification of virtue. There are far more to purification of virtue. I'll tell you more about it tonight. Maybe you'd like a few moments to ask some questions. You didn't want to know it. You mean the feeling that produced the action? Yes. I see. And you mean that you think that you didn't want to become aware of it because it was an unpleasant feeling. Right. Yes. yes, that's quite true. We all suffer from that difficulty, that we cannot always see ourselves as honestly as we might want to. Um, it just takes practice. Now, having seen this, what you've just described, maybe next time it will be easier to, to see that unpleasant feeling which produced the action and therefore refrain from the action if you don't think that the action is a positive one. Having seen in oneself that one tries to cover up, and we all do, helps one then not to do that the next time. But all of this is a slow-growing process which must be continued diligently all the time. Only then will it bear fruit. If we only remember it during a meditation course and maybe one week afterwards, it will not work. It's got to be a lifetime commitment. And as it is a lifetime commitment, we can see in ourselves a slow growth, a slow change. And as we change slowly, it is very heartening and it's very hopeful and very 
um, gives one a great deal of confidence that it's possible. So having seen this now, next time, it will probably be much easier to see it quicker. Yes. The feeling, you mean? Yes. Yes, the feelings, the emotions are like waves. And the more of the waves we have, the less we can see in depth. I suppose so. You know, when you have neurotics or paranoid people, um, if they don't create a great deal of disturbance, one can live with them. But if they create a great deal of disturbance, one has to then remember to protect one's own happiness. One has to find that line somewhere because it's useless to be another burnout. And uh, that fine line has to be found. Because, you see, we're no longer good for anything if we get too far into that line. If that person doesn't want to learn about loving-kindness, it's no use trying to teach it um, or to even mention it. Giving it, yes, certainly, but to the point where one can protect one's own happiness. Mm, yes, well. I mean, if there's a, that resistance within and not wanting to find out about oneself, there's nothing one can do. I mean, the Buddha taught those people who wanted to know. And uh, those who didn't want to know, well, they didn't come near him. And some even did come near him and still didn't want to know. There's a story of a man who came sobbing and crying to the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha said, what's the matter? Why are you sobbing and crying? And he said, I just lost my beloved only son. And the Buddha said, what one loves brings sorrow. And the man said, what nonsense? And ran away. So that too is possible. And that happened to the Buddha himself. So what should we say? What will happen to us? <laughs> Could you say that again? Certainly not for everyone, no. Certainly not. Yes. When you were judging negatively, you mean? 
Um, judging does not always have to be negative. It could be objective at times. So you're meaning negatively, right? S- sorry? Okay. All right. Yeah. When you find yourself judging negatively, at that time, the thing to do is to substitute it. It's much easier than just dropping it. To drop it is much more difficult. Of course, when one has practiced for some time and sees it, oh, this is a negative judgment, one can just let go of it. That's fine. But it's easier to substitute. And as you substitute... um, a feeling of compassion and lovingness and understanding for the other person can be the substitution. And it is easier than just dropping. And you will feel the relief in that. But it must not just be lip service. It's got to touch the feelings. It's got to be really in here. And for the simple reason, it's so simple, that it doesn't, that it makes oneself unhappy if one keeps up this negative attitude. That should be the greatest incentive ever. But not in meditation, In meditation, you're also substituting. You're substituting the thought with the breath, with the attention on the breath. That's your substitution in meditation. And in meditation, as I said, it doesn't matter whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, whether it's great love or whatever, just substitute with the breath. That's where we learn our substitution procedure. But when it's in daily life, then, of course, we look at wholesome and unwholesome. Yes. Repeat them in detail. Yeah, but uh, you want just uh, uh, the one avoid and that, or just to or to let an unwholesome, not to let an unwholesome thought. Which one do you want? Um, No, willpower is what you need in order to make all four arise. That's your support system, the willpower. So they are they go like this. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue, which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen. And to make a wholesome thought continue. That's a four. And the willpower is the support system. Okay? Right. Yes. In the meditation, right. Um, pep talk. Give yourself a pep talk. <laughs> Have you tried it? Yeah, my pep talk is being too Sorry? I think that's being short on willpower. Yes. I do pep talk about that. Okay. Uh, do a contemplation. Right? Why do I want to meditate? Give, find out the reasons. Why do I really want to meditate? Is it important? What is it in my life that makes me want to meditate? Is it important enough? If it is really important, the willpower will come with it. 
the energy will be aroused. But first contemplate and see what is it, why do I want to do this, what do I know about it already that is helpful. Just ask yourself all these questions. Write the answers down if you like so that you can remember them, look at them again. And if the, if the answers are, well, I don't really want to do it, it's just because my friends did it, you're going to keep on falling asleep. But if there's a good enough reason and a good enough incentive, then the willpower will take over. So do that as a contemplation, okay? Mm-hmm. What what did you investigate, for instance? Give me a for instance. I was investigating this uh, planning. Why do I want to keep planning? Mm-hmm. And then I came to the best way I can control my life mm-hmm. without being present. Without being present, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I saw that. But I also had a whole story of, well, I could have done this plan and this plan and all that. I mean, I realized after a while that it was just controlling, and I seem to do more meditating in the future, in the planning, mm-hmm. than, than, than in the history. Yeah. Okay. The, when you investigate the planning and then the answer is, because I want to control my life without actually having to be there, then your next question is, does that make any sense? And then find out what the answer is. Then the answer, and question the answer again. Keep on questioning every answer. There is a bottom line beyond which one can't question. I can give you the answer to the bottom line, but you've got to get there yourself anyway. The bottom line is ego. That's the bottom line for anything. It doesn't matter what you question. But it's useless to say, oh, yeah, 